Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Welcome to a special edition of the Spiked Podcast. As the Brexit deadline draws ever closer, the cries of panic over the effects of a no-deal Brexit get ever louder. Every day, we're subjected to new and ever more lurid scare stories, warning of an instant and painful recession, food and medicine shortages, and even civil unrest if we leave the EU without making a deal. But how seriously can we take these predictions? Is leaving the EU on WTO terms really so bad for the economy? And what are the opportunities that a clean Brexit might offer? I'm Fraser Myers, and on this week's Spike podcast, I spoke to two Brexit-backing economists, The Guardian's Larry Elliott and Spike's Phil Mullen, to find out more. The economy crashes by 8% in a single year as house prices tumble by a third and inflation soars to 6.5%. The port of Dover would shut down on day one of Brexit. 3,500 troops are on standby. Some members of the public are taking matters into their own hands, stocking up on essential goods in case supplies in the shops run low. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Spike Podcast. We'll be discussing the economics of Brexit, the myths around no deal, the opportunities for post-Brexit Britain and more. I'm Fraser Myers and today I'm joined by The Guardian's economics editor, Larry Elliott. Hello. And Phil Mullen, author of Creative Destruction, How to Start an Economic Renaissance. Hello. So no deal is generally portrayed as a disaster. You often hear it described as crashing out or a cliff edge Brexit. Is that a fair way to describe leaving the EU on WTO terms? Uh, No, I think all those terms that you've just uh, reminded us are very pejorative. Uh, Just the assumption is that this is going to be a a, a disaster. But I think what I find intriguing recently, and I don't know what Larry thinks about it, is that the economic Brexit bashing stories are just getting so bizarre that you sort of feel that they are not really trying to persuade anybody. Um, because if you look at the Dyson story, if you look at the uh, Nissan story, if you look at the just-in-time stuff, these people are making such bizarre claims that everything is going to go to hell in a handcart for filling in a few forms or for you know some changes in trade in trade patterns. It's just bizarre. It seems as though that's the only thing the hardcore remainers have got is to sort of describe what's going to happen on the 30th of March in almost biblical terms. I mean, Mm. apart from plagues of locusts and the Black Death, there's not been very much that they haven't said is going to happen. Shops are going to run short of food, you know, there's going to be no drugs in the hospitals. I mean, it's kind of a bit OTT. Sure. So you don't buy this idea that there's going to be civil unrest and the Queen is going to have to be evacuated from Buckingham Palace? Really? It's just absurd. I think what they're trying to do is just provide cover for all those sort of wavering MPs because it's not really directed to the public. I mean, if you if you listen to, you know, question time or anything like that, mm. you know, members of the public there are well aware these things are just ridiculous. It just seems to be providing cover think, to all I, these wavering MPs to yeah, say yeah. anything but Brexit. You know, no deal will be such a disaster. You've got to either 
go for an extension of Article 50 or back May's ridiculous deal. Yeah, I don't or think whatever. the public. See, I don't the think public. the public are buying Project Fear Mark One or Mark Two. But I think quite a lot of MPs, bless them, are. Yes. I think quite a lot of MPs are buying all that stuff, and they're, 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 they've, they've been completely won over by, you know, the Treasury forecast, the Bank of England forecast. I mean, the Bank of England forecast saying that the economy is going to. You know that they're going to bang up interest rates by four percentage points in the event of, uh, of of a No Deal Brexit. It's just completely ridiculous. The Bank of England would be cutting interest rates. The Treasury would be spending more money. You know there there are things that governments can do. They're not just going to sit there mm. in the event that things do turn nasty and they expect it and just say, you know what, we're just going to allow this to happen to us. It's just not just not not feasible politics. And um, I mean, let's take some of these uh, ideas um, in turn, I guess. So, so what do you think, what's realistic that we could expect to happen at Dover and Calais, for instance? That seems to be a source of a lot, lot of fear mongering. Well, I mean, what, what we've heard so far from the Calais side is that they're going to keep the port open. That You know, the idea that the French authorities are going to just say, uh, we're, we're going to, in a fit of peak, close our port to exporting goods to the UK. I mean, they're just they're just not having that because one for what for one it's going to cost them business. The business mm. would go to other ports. For two, why would they do that? Why why on earth would anybody cut off their nose to spite their face in that way? I think that particularly the Dover Calais route or the uh, the the Calais Folkestone route or whatever also exposes this myth that somehow there is frictionless trade at the mm. moment because haulage companies, you know, transit companies are well aware. That there's not frictionless trade. You know, it takes 35 minutes, I think, to go under the under the under the channel. But people expect two or three hours before they uh, they get out at the other end. That's the nature of the business at the moment. And another two minutes or six seconds, as they say in Southampton, or an hour maybe at the upside. Uh, an extra hour's delay. The idea that that's going yeah. to be Armageddon is yeah. just is just ridiculous. Anybody who's ever, ever been on the M2 or the M25 knows that you can quite easily sit there for three or four hours, you know, mm. un, unexpectedly. Yeah, um, and you know, businesses do not collapse, and the whole just-in-time thing is another of these ridiculous scare stories. I mean, just-in-time is presented as this absolute that you know all our manufacturing companies are going to you know grind to a halt. If uh, you know a delivery is one hour late or two hours late or whatever, it doesn't work that way. Business doesn't work that way. They always have uh, contingency plans for that sort of thing. And, and I mean, there, there have even been times in the in the past, I guess, where you know Kent has effectively turned into a into a car park. We've seen operations stack whenever there's uh, strikes at Calais. But why hasn't that ground the economy to the halt in the way that No Deal is? traders doing well i think that's that's the reality of business i mean i, I agree with larry it's project fear mark too but it's also i call it project fairyland there's this ideal presented that somehow you know business works in this well-oiled supply chain that nothing ever goes wrong and as you've just said mm. you know whether it's snow on the motorways or industrial action or a breakdown in the channel tunnel or, or whatever businesses have to be able to cope with with uh, you know reasonable delays and they do so they do so at the moment. Also, it's kind of worth mentioning that the large share of the economy is not exports. Yeah. Most of the economy is domestically focused. And only 30% of our GDP is trade, of which half goes to the EU. So that's about 15% of our GDP. So you have to assume that the whole of that GDP mm. to, the, to the EU gets wiped out all of a sudden. To have any real major effect on the economy. Most of the economy, you know, the people who go 
down the road for a drink or that they go to their solicitors to get their, their arrange a mortgage or any of those things that people do by you know going to have their haircut is going to be completely unaffected <laughs> you know it's not and i think quite a lot of people have realized that that you know, actually their everyday life yeah is not really going to be materially affected i mean i think we should probably distinguish between two different things one is you know, there no doubt will be some teething problems yeah. because, you know, leaving the EU is a change. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think in this room, we would prefer to see uh, leaving the European Union uh, in the way that people voted for it. If that does happen, um, then that does mean disruption because it does mean a bit of change. Mm. But that's no bad thing. I think one of the problems is that everyone's default setting is just want to keep things the way they are at the moment. So I think we need to distinguish between the teething troubles because businesses will have to adapt, but they'll they'll push on, they'll sort it out, they'll they'll get through it with the more sort of long-term fear-mongering about 5, 6, 7, 8% collapse in GDP, uh, which is this idea that somehow uh, we're so dependent, as Larry's saying, on trade, this assumption that we're so dependent on trade that the whole of the economy is going to go backwards. Clearly, it would be better if we, if there was going to be a no deal and it was a managed no deal rather than a, than an unmanaged, chaotic no deal. I mean, yeah. you know, there will be, there would be some economic costs from that, um, and they would, you know, they would quite easily push the economy, which is not growing that fast, into a, into a short term recession. But even in the event of a of a chaotic so called no deal, the hit to the economy I expect would be fairly short term and much more modest. Than anybody is expecting, because as I say, the Treasury and the Bank of England would actually reflate the economy very quickly. Yeah, and if that does happen, I think we should also see that the responsibility is lies on government really, because people voted what nearly three years ago to leave, which meant all these changes were going to happen at some time, and yet. Because the politician means saying, well, really, we're going to do something which is almost exactly the same as what we had before. They've lulled a lot of businesses into the full sense that we really don't have to change anything. Mm. I mean, sensible businesses have been preparing for a couple of years. But a lot of people who don't want to change or are you know, very happy with the status quo have taken the lead from government that really there's not really going to be any change. And therefore, a lot of people are underprepared. Uh, and that means that the, any disruption there is, I think, is going to be made worse by the political leaders we've had who've been so uh, in, incapable of actually implementing a decision. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to ask a bit more about that, because obviously there have been some almost kind of laughable stories. You, you think about the, the Chris Grayling debacle where he's chartered a ferry company that owns no ferries. I mean, how much confidence can we have that these people who, let's be honest, don't want us to leave the EU have actually prepared adequately for us to, to leave. I think we have to distinguish you know, businesses from the civil servants and the tax people and so on, and the politicians. And there's, I think there's three different dynamics there. I think a lot of the administrators, a lot of the, the people running the British civil service, you know, and you know, the French civil service, and you know, the Calais port, as Larry says, and so on, a lot of people have been preparing mm. for the, for the eventualities that's what they that's what they should be doing and that has rolled down to some businesses who a very good example people have looked at is next who did a uh, you know very um uh, controlled risk management as to what the impact for the next retailer is going to be um of uh, you know any potential delays at Calais or whatever uh, so some businesses then are prepared in that way, just as normal risk management in terms of what might or may not might not happen. I think it's the I think the problems are really at the top, where they've just 
gone from on the one hand saying nothing's really going to change mm. this is all we can do you know that we're going to have to go with this deal because no deal is so bad and stuff it's those mixed messages from the politicians which i think have added to the confusion elsewhere uh, and maybe maybe it has meant that some civil servants haven't had the leadership they should have had from their ministers to actually prepare properly but my view is that what disruption will be the responsibility should be laid fairly and squarely on the government for not having taken the last two and a half years to prepare for something which people voted for they would have been much better off preparing for a clean Brexit right from the start because, A, we would have been much better prepared mm. now, you know, rather than have, you know, a typical sort of British, you know, it's a bit like sort of preparing for war in 1939. All of a sudden you realize, oh my God, this guy really means it. You know, we better prepare for it. And then you do everything at the last minute. There's that. And also it would have actually strengthened Britain's negotiating hand in the talks with the mm. EU had they thought right from the start that we were serious about going for a clean Brexit and leaving the single market and the customs union, we would have got, I'm sure, a much better deal. As it was, our negotiating position was fundamentally weakened by the fact that they knew that our politicians didn't really want to leave on those terms. They wanted to stay in on the sort of with the, sort of, the biggest sort of sweetheart deal they could possibly get. So you know, it was Brexit in name only. That's you know, the European side realised that. Very early on. Very early on. One other thing, just um, on the specifics of, of No Deal. I mean, there's obviously, it throws up this question of um, tariffs. And you're completely right to say that a large part of the economy isn't trade, but a large part of what people are buying in the day to day might be affected by that. How adversely do you think will be affected by increasing tariffs? Do we even have to slap tariffs on, on EU goods? What are your views on that? We don't have to slap tariffs. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, there are some economists, there's some free market economists who say that actually what we should do is um, just abolish all our tariffs on EU goods. You know, yeah. or on, on, and, but once you've done that, you've got to abolish them under WHO rules. You've got to abolish them on goods from everywhere because there's a principle known as most favoured nation, which means if you offer zero tariffs to one group of people, you have to offer them to everybody. And so their argument is that what would happen is that the price of imported goods would would go down very, very sharply. Consumers' yeah. really incomes would go up. Therefore, we'd buy a load more stuff, and therefore we would be better off. Um, and you know, there is a there is a logic to that. Although it would mean severe problems for some sectors of the economy if you did that. Cars, for mm. one, because at the moment there's a ten percent tariff on in, on cars imported from outside the EU, and food I and mean, farmers would be affected. So there's those. If the government is going to go down that route, and there are, uh, it would have to make specific contingency plans for those two sectors or they would be you know certainly car industry would face really serious problems and the other the other problem is if you're going to go into a trade negotiation with another country yeah uh, if you say that we're going to abolish all our tariffs then what have you got to bargain with mm. so you have to be slightly careful about that route but in theory there's no reason why you have to impose tariffs i mean tariffs I think are a bit exaggerated in terms of what their impact is. As, I mean, as, as a point was made just after the referendum, you know, a 10% drop in or a 15% drop in sterling, uh, as happened, was much, much more significant on import prices and export prices than average tariffs of 3 4 5%. I mean, yeah. Larry's right. Agricultural produce is much higher. Mm. Cars are 10% and stuff. So I, I think we should see them in a, in a bit of uh, perspective because really the thing that messes up trade today is much more non what's called non-tariff barriers, yeah. regulations and controls for environmental health and safety and so on. Those are the things which um, uh, hinder and, and distort trade much more than the actual tariff levels.
I mean, I'm not a tariff expert, I'm not a legal expert, but I am aware of this discussion going on at the moment about Article 24 of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades, which does seem to, um, and you know, there is ambiguity about it, there is debate about it, but it does seem to provide the provision for uh, two parties, in this case, Britain and the EU, if there was to be a, a, an exit, whereby they could agree to an interim arrangement while they negotiated a free trade agreement. And that interim arrangement would be on the basis of the existing levels, i.e. no tariffs. Um, that does involve an agreement with, between the EU and, the, uh, and Britain. But if we were to get to that stage, and I think it's a big hypothetical if we were to get to that stage, that would be, I think, a more sensible thing to do. That is, leave the European Union, leave the single market, agree with the EU for zero for zero tariffs mm. during the interim arrangement while a free trade agreement is negotiated. I mean, that's another area that uh, our negotiators or our political leaders were completely incompetent by giving up the idea which they rightly had at the beginning that we should use the uh, uh, Article 50 period for negotiating or beginning to negotiate a free trade agreement. And they just backed down completely when the European Union said, no, we're not doing that. We can't negotiate anything like that until afterwards. There's, there's quite a lot of you know, unnecessary gloom about negotiating a free trade agreement with the EU. I mean, no, I think it would be it would be definitely preferable to have a free trade agreement. I mean, the yeah. EU is still our biggest trade partner by far. So it makes a lot of sense. You know, it, countries that, that trade on WTO terms tend to have trading agreements with their closest partners, which is why the US has a trading agreement with Canada and Mexico, although it's been kind of um, messed around a bit by Donald Trump. But I mean, essentially, in Australia and New Zealand have a, have, a, have a free trade agreement and so on. But I mean, there's an awful lot of talk about how it would take 10, 15 years to negotiate a trade agreement with between the between Britain and the EU. But that seems to me to be ridiculously pessimistic because we already have pretty much you know, mm. free trade between the, you know in goods between the, the countries, and there is some you know we are we are aligned with all their regulations. So you know it's it's only going to take years and years and years for two countries which have got systems which are massively different our systems already pretty much closely aligned so with some goodwill i'd have thought uh, you know you should be able to negotiate something relatively quickly yeah i think that's on a par with all the other panic mongering which there is to say it's going to take six seven eight years you know these yeah. things are so complicated so complex i mean i think the average is something like 18 months to 20 months on a global table and that's between parties which have got different trade arrangements as larry says we're starting from exactly the same patterns and regulations on both sides so no reason why it would come in a year or two definitely not so we could potentially say for instance leave on the 29th of march but then begin to negotiate a free trade deal for the for the future yeah, the because Canada plus plus plus, as people yeah. tend to call it, you know, it's a, a trade agreement which includes goods and services and involves, you know, mutual recognition of regulations and financial services, all those good things that, you know, many trade experts have already spelt out in great detail. There is no need for us to get uh, uptight about how you can overcome, as as Larry says, between two major trading partners. I mean, that's the reality of the situation. It's in everyone's interest to get that, that sort of agreement. I'd just like to take a really quick moment to say a massive thank you to everyone who's been donating to Spiked. I know many of you who listen to this podcast have donated to us in the past or make monthly donations, and it's thanks to your contributions and generosity that we can keep going and growing. Spiked has some very exciting plans for the year ahead with our podcasts, and we need the help of listeners and readers like you to make them happen. So if you haven't before, please do consider making a donation, or even better, 
setting up a monthly donation. It's really easy to do. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. Thank you. Now, back to the show. It could be the case that the direction of travel takes us actually to towards May's deal, perhaps with a amended backstop or something like that. But what what do you think are the potential dangers in in May's deal? Why why is no deal preferable, particularly to that outcome? Well, May, May's deal is it seems to me to, you get none of the real benefits of leaving, and you know and none of the benefits of being in. I mean, you know, you're, you're the, the whole sort of you know it's essentially a Norway. Norway position where mm. you are accepting most of the rules of the EU without having any say in how the rules are made. I mean that that is the that is the fundamental weakness in theoretical terms. I mean, is in practical terms the weakness is that if we get screwed by the EU over the transition deal, mm. over the over the withdrawal agreement, then they're going to screw us on the trade deal as well. You know, they're, they're, <laughs> you know I think we have to show a bit, little bit more. Savvy, really. I mean, you know, the, I, I mean, I, I can see why people say that being outside the EU on May's terms is like being a vassal state, because there is something, something, something in that. I think. And obviously, it seems to be an, a, an attempt to try and replicate a lot of the conditions of the single market and you know customs union that we should be leaving. Do you think the benefits of those things are exaggerated in you know in the general discussion? One has to separate the economics and the politics from it. I think because yeah. I mean, I'm in favour of you know, much more extensive, developed international division of labor, product specialization, all those good things that come with closer economic relationships on an international level. Uh, and that's, you know, what informs a lot of the free trade agreements around the world and so on and informs the general process of liberalization. But distinguish that from what comes with being part of the Soviet Union. The reason uh, Soviet Union <laughs> with the European Union is, uh, is all the politics of it, is the denial of sovereignty. And mm. we have to remind ourselves in a discussion on the potential economics of Brexit, why did people vote to leave? They voted on the base of sovereignty on the basis of now on the base of democracy. Those are the things which have got no benefits. And you can't balance the two up. You can separate them, but it's not a matter of comparing what economic benefits we get here as against the uh, the abrogation of sovereignty. Uh, and in that respect, that's what people voted about. I think they did vote a lot of them because they actually thought, you know what, this economy might be working well for the people who own shares in yeah. Nissan and British Aerospace and all those multinational companies that are now kicking up a stink about staying in the customs union, but it's not actually filtering down to me and my family. And I think it was a perfectly rational thing to do. They wanted change. They wanted a different sort of political settlement. And if they don't get it, there's going to be an awful lot of anger about it, I think. I think that's right. There was a vote. It was a vote against uh, against the status against the status quo. And I think also, while you're right, people have had a very rough deal um, over the, particularly the last ten years with you know flat living standards and so on. I think what people were were voting for, as illustrated by that Ashcroft poll on the day, mm. um, you know, very few people. Um, said they were voting because they thought it would be good for the economy. You know, I think one, yeah. in, one in 20 or something said that. Most people voted because it was did reflect that general view of taking back control. They thought that laws for the UK should be decided in the UK. They thought there should be a bit more control over, over, over the borders and so on. Um, uh, and in that respect, I think the project, the, the, the first phase of Project Fear did, didn't have the impact that people thought it would have. I think people were well aware of all these scare stories and said, well, there might be a bit of disruption, might be this, but that's a secondary factor. Um, I think that experience was a, a very sort of illustrative one of the fact that 
ordinary people don't always just get motivated by their pockets, don't get motivated by um, uh, by the economy. Um, there are you know bigger issues at, at play. That's not to disagree, disagree with what Larry's saying about uh, about stagnant living standards. That obviously does add to the disgruntlement. But I think a lot of people have felt that the uh, the powers that be, and I think the the whole fear-mongering at the moment just adds to that the powers that be don't have their interests at stake they, they don't have their interests at heart you know that they they're treated in a patronizing way or ignored or treated with contempt and people just said you know we want a different as i said a different political settlement we want something different i, I, agree, I agree i agree with that and i think that if you, you know, the idea that people just vote i mean i think they, there was there was an awful lot of economic unhappiness but the idea that people just vote on you know how much money they've got in their pocket or about whether it's going to grow the economic pie yeah. or be good for the economy is a bit of a myth. And it's pro- and if you turn it on its head and you go to a, a remain area of the country, say somewhere you know around the M25 or with a nice green belt area and say, well, would you like us to you know abolish all the planning rules and build loads more houses all over the green belt because that's going to be good for the economy and grow GDP and make everybody better off. Mm. You get pretty short shrift for those people. They would say, you know what, there's something more important. Open space is more important. You know, <laughs> having a nice place to live is more important. The idea of rational economic man or woman is, you know, people don't always vote on GDP per head anyway. But also, I mean, one one thing that se- seems to be quite obvious after the vote is that a lot of the forecasting was just wrong in terms of the predictions made about the you know the direct impact of the vote and why do you think that you know the bank of england and the treasury and all, and all those people got it so wrong well i mean again you have to distinguish what the sort of political standing point is yeah. and um uh, how that gets manifest in terms of their public statements um and i think you know all those institutions have a you know, profound attachment to the status quo. Um, and so it's hardly surprising. It's not a conspiracy. It's hardly surprising that their models that they uh, from which they derive their economic forecasts, and they've all got ba- basically pretty much the same models, they put in the assumptions that things are going to be bad. And lo and behold, the models uh, come out and, and, and declare that things are bad. I think it shows the folly of this overwrought Brexit preoccupation, because these models are based on what they call everything else being equal, et cetera, as mm. power of us. And that's the problem at the moment. They assume everything else is not going to change because that's their default position. We want things to stay the way they are. And that avoids then the much deeper problems, which got nothing to do with being in the EU or nothing to do with Brexit or nothing to do with referendums or whatever, which is this very long established um, uh, lack of investment uh, low productivity, the, the sort of forces which have created that uh, flag, flatlining of living standards that Larry described. Mm. Those models assume that nothing's going to change in that, whereas it's precisely these other factors, which is where we should be focused. We should be worried about economic problems. Britain's got a lot of problems, which have nothing to do with Brexit, nothing to do with Brussels, nothing to do with EU regulation, whatever. They've got deep, deep-rooted problems, which this whole Brexit bashing discussion is is diverting us from and it's distracting us from. I think I think there were there were two two phases of the sort of um, economic wrongheadedness of the treasury treasury in particular, but also the Bank of England. The first phase was you know when they said here are the long term implications of right. Brexit, which was kind of a bit more measured and you know but it was based on some really really dodgy assumptions and one of which was that all the Increase in trade that we would we had from the joining the EU in 1973 would be lost 
straight away. You know that we would we would we would lose all those benefits immediately. Uh, we left the EU, and that we would have no compensating increases in trade elsewhere. Now that that seemed to me to be a pretty absurd set of assumptions. And even then, you know, they were saying that you know in twenty in twenty thirty, I think it was fifteen years afterwards, our economy would be six percent smaller than it would otherwise have been. Which, given that the economy in twenty sixteen was twenty percent smaller than it had <laughs> been in twenty ten, and no one spotted it. And as Phil says, it all presupposed, one, that you'd, you'd get no benefits from, any, from the fast-growing parts of the world, and B, that the government would just sit there and allow this to happen, that there would be no no government would say, well, you know, here's an opportunity. We've left the EU, you know, we've left the EU for a reason, which is that people are very unhappy with the status quo. What can we do to actually put right some of the failings of the economy? I think the second phase of it was, was more pernicious, which is when... You know, it was quite clear that the establishment was on the run in in May and June, mm. early June 2016, and then they just panicked yeah. and decided that they would just all they could do really was just you know turn up the volume, and then they started saying things like house prices will fall by 30 percent, the economy will go into a two year recession, there will be 500 thousand more people unemployed. I think they just then they just hit the panic button, and to be to be to be honest, I think that made things worse for them. Because yeah. at that point, people just said, you know what, we don't believe in any of this stuff. And is the forecasting around no deal equally flawed? I mean, particularly from you know the Bank of England and the, and the Treasury. I think actually that the, the Treasury and the Bank of England could quite easily talk us into a recession that we don't need to have. And if that happens, the politicians uh, will, will bear a heavy responsibility for that, I think. Because I don't think there's any objective reason why the economy should crash. You know, consumers... Spending is about two thirds of the economy, and you know wages are going up faster than prices. People should be out there spending money, and they're not. Interest rates are still low, employment's very strong. All, there are all the conditions are there for actually the economy to be going fairly, fairly robustly. Certainly, the domestic economy, and I don't see any reason other than that people are starting to get a bit scared because the politicians. All they do, they turn on the TV every day, and there's someone banging on about how we're all going to go to hell in a handcart. Yeah. Well, I think we can part, I think we might part ways a little bit there because I don't think things are as strong, uh, the fundamentals aren't, no, the fundament, aren't, aren't the, strong no, at all. No, the fundamentals um, aren't strong, but in the short the short term, there's no real reason why the... You know, there's you know, there's, there's no immediate reason, but but I mean, that's one of the problems with this whole discussion, not, not our discussion, but the discussion out there, that everything is so... Um, Brexit focused yeah. that people forget you know there are some serious problems out there I mean w- if it wasn't for Brexit we should be discussing the fact that you know the Federal Reserve did this amazing U-turn last week on, on monetary policy where we have a situation where you know what are we are 10 years after uh, 10 years after the financial crash real interest rates are still negative even in America where they've started to put up interest rates they're still barely positive and now people are fearful about what that's going to do to the economy um so when you have that situation i think that is an indication of underlying weakness of fundamentals not just in britain but in many other uh, advanced advanced uh, economies uh, in those circumstances anything can happen and and in that sense larry's right that Talking an economy down in the way or talking the problems up um, can, in this situation, uh, a- a- aggravate the situation. It won't be Brexit causing the problems or you know, leaving the EU causing the problems. It'll be the way in which uh, you know, a weak economy is talked into a worse recession than it needs to have. I mean, it's clearly the case that the, our economy has some, has some serious long-term problems and has had them for many, many decades. These, these are not just problems which have arisen as a result of the financial crisis you know we've 
know, since the early 1980s, we've not run a manufacturing trade surplus in one single year. You know, our balance of payments in trade has been has been negative for you know getting on for four decades. We've had zero productivity growth pretty much in the last ten years. You know, these are serious long term. You know, it, uh, the economy is so heavily weighted towards London and the southeast, which is another reason that people in the northern regions voted strongly for Brexit. There's yeah. a very very strong anti-metropolitan London elite in all this you know we don't like London which is you know which gets you know more than its fair share of public investment and so on you know there's the the, the Britain the British economy is you know is in many ways fundamentally weak yeah and that's why people like me supported Brexit because I actually thought Brexit was an opportunity to start dealing with those long-term problems and one of the issues I have with the Remainers is that they just want to turn the clock back to June 2016 and then you know as, as if the status quo is going to resolve all those problems but I, I might be introducing them unfairly but so far I've seen nothing from the Remain side that suggests they've got a plan for putting right any of those problems. No oh, and, 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 and any bright ideas they may have had from time to time have been put on the back burner. Mm. I mean there was all this discussion two years ago about this new industrial policy and it's obviously good to have that sort of discussion but that's all been all been sidelined. Unfortunately, yeah, I agree with Larry that what's going to come out of this, whatever happens on the 29th of, of March, there's no clear ideas coming forward from any side at the moment that there are these serious long-term problems, economic problems, which need solutions. And being in the EU or out of the EU is not going to resolve or aggravate them. And, uh, you know, talking of these kind of long-term problems, I mean, uh, we've also seen problems start to arise in the Eurozone. You know, so Italy in technical recession, people are afraid about what might happen to Germany. I mean, what do you make of those developments? Well, I mean, one of the things that always has kind of amused me since the referendum is that all the people that before 2016 would say things like, well, it's absolutely terrible what the EU has been doing to Greece. And, you know, the you know, the EU is just, you know, obsessed with austerity, you know, and is forcing yeah. countries to cut their cut their budgets and so on, have, have completely forgotten all that. Mm. You know, as far as they're concerned, the EU is this land of milk and honey, when it quite clearly isn't, yeah. you, know, the, 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 you know. The euro has been an absolute disaster for the countries that joined it. The only country that you could say has done well out of the euro is Germany. And then it's not really the German people. It's German exporting companies that have mm. done well. Living standards in Germany have not really gone up that much. But if you look at Italy, where they've had no growth, in tw- their their GDP head is as low as it was in in the late 1990s. If you look at France, where they've got you know massive unrest on the on, on the on the streets, you know if you if you you know if you look at unemployment across the European Union, it's double what it is in the UK. You know this is this isn't a this is a this is an economy that's really really struggling, and the more integrated the Europeans try to make their economy, the worse things get in my view. So that's one of the other reasons why I'm not at all frightened about Britain being outside the European Union is that I think in five years time, the European Union is going to be in a much worse state than the British economy. Yeah, and it shows, I mean, it has all those dire economic consequences you said to to particularly the people in Southern Europe, although as you say, people in Northern Europe haven't done all that well if you're looking at the working class people. But it does show just where you where you come to when you have this uh, politically illegitimate institution known as the European Union, when it imposes these rules, which do have these terrible economic consequences, and there's no legitimacy for it. Uh, and therefore you have this growing unrest in many parts of, uh, of the European Union of people 
you know, not not wanting to come out and 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 support uh, uh, the breakup of the EU yet, but a lot of anti anti euro sentiment. A lot of people can see that the euro is causing problems, and whether they want it or not, the euro is a very very unstable unstable institution. Yeah, I'm not a great supporter of the Italian government, but you know they've they've had they've had zero growth in Italy mm. for, for twenty years. They've got unemployment in you know ten percent or more. They've got something like thirty five percent youth unemployment. Mm. You know, they are a really struggling economy. So, you know, you get a government that comes in and says, we're going to try something different. We're going to try and spend our way to grow through. We're on a higher budget deficit, which, you know, given that the Italian banking system is so impaired and that the low interest rates are not actually working, not actually getting through to higher higher credit uh, and, and, and loans to businesses, you know, economically, there is a totally legitimate case for the Italian government running a bigger budget deficit. Yeah. As soon as it did so... You know what happens? People in Brussels say, "No, we're not allowed to do that under EU rules." You know, and what does that say to the Italian people? I just, I just find it, I find it staggering. And I, I, at some point, there is going to be a really serious revolt against. Yeah, against there's this. different I, variants I, of this distinct of this gap between the establishment, whether it's in Brussels, Paris, Rome, or whatever, mm-hmm. and uh, the ordinary people. And it just takes different forms, whether it's the gilet jaune, whether it's what's happening in Italy, whether it's what's happening in Eastern Europe, whatever. It's different ways in which people don't like being patronized and treated with contempt and realize that the status quo uh, is not working for them and that we need some change. I mean, those are the, that's the real political divide that's coming up, not between populists and, and internationalists or whatever. It's between those who are wedded to the status quo and those who see that the status quo is not working and that we need some change. Hi there. I hope you're enjoying the Spike podcast so far. And if you are, why not help us spread the word by giving us a rating and a review with your podcast provider? It won't take long, but it will make a huge difference for us. So we'd be massively grateful if you could take a tiny bit of your time to give us a rating and a review. Right, now back to the show. Well, hopefully we're going to be ditching the status quo soon. I always have to you know, cross my fingers when I say that because I never know if we're actually going to leave or not. But assuming that we do leave, assuming that we take a clean Brexit path, what's the next step? What's the vision? How do we transform the British economy, You know, make it work for you know, ordinary people in the way that it should? That is only, it's only going to change if we change things, if we do adopt a completely different economic strategy. We need a, a really fresh approach to an imaginative economic policy, which can say we have these deep long-term problems. We have this zombie economy, which is just muddling along, uh, where productivity is flatlining. Unless we have a policy which is about building for the future and changing things and not accepting the status quo, then nothing will change. So we do need something which is uh, driving business investment. We do need something which is driving long-term innovation, which is more R&D. We do need uh, a policy which can uh, uh, change, say, energy costs for business, energy costs for people, the sort of things that which can actually provide a real shake-up to the status quo, to the way businesses are. I mean, I argue a lot that uh, we've just got too many of these zombie businesses holding back the rest of the economy. Uh, And even the strongest businesses are being discouraged from investing because they're investing into an an, an anemic, you know, muddling through, uh, go nowhere, slow drift economy. So 
it needs a good shake-up. Now, unfortunately, that's not going to happen automatically just because we leave, if we do, as you say, yeah. hopefully leave the European Union. Um, what matters is a fresh approach to economic policy. I mean, I, 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 was, you know, I think that the, the left has been really remiss in not putting forward a case for a left Brexit, yeah. which would, in my mind, involve things like you know, a New Deal for the North, mm. you know, and a revival of manufacturing, a National Investment Bank, maybe a Green New Deal to sort of spread some of the benefits of a green, low-carbon economy to the northern regions, use the universities in the north, you know, as centres of excellence for the, for the new technology, the new sunrise industries of the future, new materials, environmental industries, and so on, you know, digital, digital technologies. You know, we, we could think so much more creatively. Yeah. But the, 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 you know, too much of the left has just buried its head in the sand and said, you know, what, what all we really need to do here is go back to where we were before because we felt quite comfortable with that. And as a result, they now say, well, Brexit is going to be dominated by the right. And the only reason it's, it will be dominated, if indeed it is, is because the left is completely, capitulated. completely Just... capitulated. Change comes about through crisis, and there's no doubt that Brexit is is a real political crisis, a real, ch- a real moment of change in the British economy. It could be wasted, but it could be used really, really creatively to recast the economy because, you know, 17 million people didn't vote Brexit lightly. They did so because they were fundamentally unhappy with what was going on and I think they were right to be unhappy because the economy is clearly not working and this is the big opportunity for the left to put things right. Just on one specific thing I mean there is a lot of talk among certain Tories but even only a small proportion of them that they want to turn Britain into Singapore on on Thames or whatever then you know some on the left say that that's a bargain basement Brexit. What do you think is the, is the likelihood of that? I, I personally, I find it a bit exaggerated, that kind of talk. If what is meant by Singapore on Thames is stripping away all labour rights, mm. you know, holiday entitlement, maternity pay, just turning Britain into a very low tax, you know, low regulation economy. Well, I, I mean, that is that is an option. But I think you would have people in the streets if that happened. I don't really think that's going to fly. And if that's, in some ways, that makes it easier. It should make it easier for a party, the left, to say, well, that's if that's really all the right's got to offer, yeah. here is something a lot more attractive. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I don't actually buy the argument that the European Union is the guarantor of all, all worker mm-hmm. rights. You know, a lot of those rights were actually put in place by domestic governments before we joined the EU. And some of our, some of our labour rights are actually better than EU rights anyway. So there's an awful lot of nonsense talked about it. But I think that if, that, if, that's, if that's the Tory rights plan, then that's a, that's, a, that's a dead duck. Are you optimistic then, Larry, about the post-Brexit future? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think I am an optimist. I think that, you know, that you've got to be optimistic. I mean, change, I, I'm not frightened of change. I don't have any doubt that in five, ten years' time, a lot of countries in Europe will be saying, well, you know, actually, they made the right choice. They got out of this. Uh, and they've they've thrived, and I think we will thrive with the right policies. I mean, an awful lot of the sort of pessimism is based around the idea that you can't do things differently. That you know, if you see a problem, try the EU. It's not working for us. Okay, it's, it's not. It's not the end of the world. We'll just try something else. You know, well, let's try. Let's let's experiment. Let's do something differently. I, that, I, I I'm I, excited I, about that as well in terms yeah. of doing something differently because that, I mean that to me is the is the is the big virtue of the Brexit vote. It wasn't just about leaving the EU. It was about people getting together and saying we can do things. 
differently or the, the, the present way of doing things hasn't worked for us. Let's try and do things differently. That's the exciting thing about this political situation. It's not automatic, as both of us have said. It doesn't necessarily translate into a radical economic policy, but at least it gives the basis that people are open to new ideas and want to see something different. And that's what's really positive about the present environment, despite all the shenanigans and all the back sliding and all the ineptness and incompetence and cardliness of our politicians but in terms of people out there they want to try something different thank you larry okay. thank you phil thank you very thank much you. thank you you've been listening to the spike podcast if you've enjoyed the show don't forget to give us a rating a review or even make a donation We'll be back next week, but for more Spike content every day, visit spiked-online.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.